This is Janelle Wood, and you are listening to the Finding Something Real podcast. Well, welcome back to the Finding Something Real podcast, friend. This is your host, Janelle Wood, and you are listening in for season six, where we start off each month with a different young woman sharing her story and allowing her the space to ask some tough questions about God and Christianity. This month, our content is being curated by a special co-host, that's Nora from Sweden, And Nora asked some big questions as they relate to her own journey through hard things. She admitted that she's never really felt truly happy, not since she was a kid, she said. She also said she wondered about things, why they happen in regards to suffering, because she struggled with her mental health. She said she doesn't know what to believe about the why. Is it that God makes things happen because he has a plan or a purpose? Or is it human's fault or the devil's fault? She wanted some kind of answer to the why question. In what way does he make things good? Does he plan for bad things because there's purpose to it? And unfortunately, Nora couldn't be here today. But when Nora talked about her wrestling with suffering during our first conversation together, she also mentioned that she had recently read a book that helped a bit. And it just so happened to be written by someone whom we wanted to have on this podcast for quite some time. So we asked, and guess what? That guest accepted our invitation, and she's here today. Dr. Amy Orr-Ewing is an international author, speaker, and theologian who addresses the deep questions of our day with meaningful answers found in the Christian faith. She is the author of multiple books, including Where is God in All the Suffering? and the best-selling book, Why Trust the Bible? Over the last 20 years, Amy has given talks and answered questions on university campuses around the world. She has also addressed parliamentarians in the speakers' rooms and chapel at the UK Parliament and staffers on Capitol Hill and on the West Wing of the White House. She regularly responds to invitations to speak in banks, businesses, and consulting firms, as well as churches and conferences. Amy is interested in the intersection of questions of meaning and faith with the marketplace, education, and policymaking. She holds a doctorate in theology from the University of Oxford. She enjoys broadcasting in the media and giving public lectures. She is also the co-founder of Reboot, an innovative youth initiative aimed at helping teenagers think deeply about faith, which now runs in countries all over the world. Amy lives in Oxford with her husband, Frog. They have three boys, JJ, Zach, and Benji. Welcome, Amy or Ewing. Thank you. Gosh, that is such a long bio. <laughs> it's I really got it funny when website. you're listening to it yourself. <laughs> Thank you very much. Well, That's very kind of you to to have me on. I'm oh, looking forward to our conversation. Me too, Amy. I, you know, I think I put this in my notes here, but years ago when I had questions and you know I was doing laundry and stuff, I would listen to different apologists, and you were one of the people who. I started listening to and I would listen to some of your talks and I was just so encouraged that someone who could present in a gentle and respectful way and kind of, uh, you know, non-assuming kind of way would have these beautiful, insightful things to say. And I was very inspired by your ministry and the work that you're doing. Yeah. Um, So before we dive in here, how can people hear more from you after listening to this conversation? Where can people find you? Sure. Um, so I have a website, um, com, And I'm pretty active on Instagram as well. My handle is at Amy or Ewing. Um, and I'm, I'm around and about speaking in different places, writing. 
I've got a new book out this fall called Mary's Voice, which is a book for Advent, sort of recentering Christianity's most important woman in in our theology and in our understanding of of faith and of who Jesus is. So yeah, lots of lots of ways of connecting. Yeah, tell me about your new book uh, because you've written these apologetic type books, you know, on suffering and on how to trust the Bible. What made you decide you wanted to write something about Mary? Yeah, so Mary's voice actually does have quite a bit of apologetics in it. Part of the journey um, with with this book was. I guess, realising how central to the kind of core historic truths of the Christian faith women are, and Mary in particular, as the primary witness to the incarnation of God, the idea that God was born in human history in the person of Jesus. And um, I guess if you're familiar with Christian apologetics, you might be aware that it's very significant that women were the first at the empty tomb because in the ancient world, um, a, the testimony of a woman had virtually no value in a court of law or, you know, in, in any sort of sense of, of someone reasoning, you would need a man to have witnessed something to be sure of it. So the fact that the Christian faith and, and the earliest accounts of Jesus put, position women as the primary witnesses to the resurrection is regarded as strong evidence that these are authentic accounts you know that's really critical apologetic evidence for the resurrection because you would never position women in that way if you were making up a story Um, and it struck me that actually with it's not just the resurrection it's also the incarnation Mm. so the central witness to God becoming flesh as a human being and being born miraculously into our world but also being fully human the central witness to that is a teenage girl called Mary so um the book sort of it it does have a, a, a an apologetic strand to it as well um but really it it also came out of a period of suffering and um distress in my own life um I had been through Um, the situation of being part of an organisation where the founder was um, revealed to have been an abuser of women. And that's a very devastating thing to go through as a Christian, but also, you know, as someone who who worked closely with this person, very disorientating. And I had also begun to really um, support victims of abuse in different ways. And I'd been supporting a a person who was giving evidence in a criminal trial here in Britain Mm. it was a historic case of abuse a very high high powered quite high profile perpetrator and we'd been in court um, all day listening to absolute horror of what had happened you know someone made in the image of God abused by someone with tremendous power and um, we were pretty distressed Uh, as a result of that and so in the evening in this particular city where the case was happening there was a cathedral and I just thought I need to go and pray and maybe I can just go and sit in the cathedral it's a very beautiful building and just really cry out to God and bring that distress and lament to him 
And it was Evensong, which is a sort of historic Christian service that has happened unchanged for hundreds of years. And I thought, okay, well, just, you know, listen, listen along to that. And I was given the service sheet and I just sat in one of the pews and the choir began to sing. And they sang Mary's Magnificat, which is recorded in Luke's Gospel. And it begins, Mary saying, my soul magnifies the Lord. It's after the angel Gabriel has announced to her she's going to, you know, give birth to the Son of God. And But it goes on as this extraordinary proclamation of Mary's faith and insight into who Jesus is going to be and what he's going to do. And it has this one line in it where it says, he hath brought down the rulers from their thrones. And as the choir sang that, it sort of hit me between the eyes. It was this extraordinary, prophetic, confident statement of what Jesus has come into this world to do, to address evil and sin, to bring down the powerful and mighty from their thrones when, you know, when they're involved in, in the oppression of the weak. And it was so relevant to the situation I was in. And that kind of began a journey of rediscovering um, Christianity's most significant female voice. Mm. I realised as a Protestant that, you know, we're a bit frightened of Mary because we don't, we don't want to sort of overdo Mary, you know, don't want to sort of fall into worshipping her or whatever, mm. you know. Um, and I realised that my error, and I think for many of us this might be true, is that in being so careful not to overdo Mary, we've actually failed to listen to her voice. Mm. We've failed to realise how amazing the Christian faith is in positioning this woman in this way. It says a lot about who God is. This is who he chooses as the primary witness to the incarnation, you know, totally insignificant in human terms woman in a patriarchal society, a teenager living under the oppression of the Roman Empire. That's who God chooses, you know. So um, lots and lots of reasons to write the book. And um, yeah, it's, it's, it's out this fall. Yeah. Yeah. And when this airs, it will have been out, I think, because it comes out here in the US, I want to say the end of October. It so does. This yeah. 26th of October, yeah. I think. Yeah. What was something that you, because it was interesting as I was reading the description of the book, I was thinking it is rare that a Protestant really dives in to the significance of Mary. What was something that was surprising to you in researching mm-hmm. and preparing to write this book? Yeah, so the beginning, I guess, was was beginning rather than seeing Mary as the sort of mute figure in Renaissance art, eyes down, perpetually caught in you know, the few weeks of her life when she has a small baby and to begin to realise this is someone who is defiant in the face of great oppression and difficulty Mm. um, because of Jesus. You know, her whole life is about glorifying the Lord and she believed that her son, Jesus, was the Lord, you know, incarnate with us. So I think the first thing was recapturing her, her voice And then there are all sorts of threads and strands. I began to realise as I was researching around the Magnificat how immersed in the Old Testament Mary was. She knew the scriptures and she has this line about Abraham 
And then I began to, in, in my research, see how the New Testament sort of positions Mary as a kind of second Abraham. So that first Abraham has his his beloved son, Isaac, who carries the wood up Mount Moriah for the sacrifice and God provides the ram. God provides, you know, Jehovah Jireh, that famous story in the Old Testament. And in the New Testament, Mary's son carries the wood for his sacrifice up mm. the same hill. The Mount of Crucifixion is Mount Moriah. It's the same place. Wow. And she watches her son carry the wood for his sacrifice. And he is the lamb that, of God that, that God is providing for us. She, she doesn't experience the deliverance that Abraham experiences, um, but she watches and witnesses the crucifixion. So she's the primary witness to the incarnation. She's one of the primary witnesses to resurrection, but she's also right there at the foot of the cross witnessing the atonement. And um, it just struck me as extraordinary that we don't just have her perspective she's the primary source for Luke's gospel you know um tradition tells us that he leaned very heavily on her eyewitness accounts alongside other eyewitnesses and we don't just have her witness we also in the Magnificat have her specific words recorded Mm. for us And um, then I guess just the last thing is that she's always pointing away from herself to Jesus. So although the book is called Mary's Voice, if we listen to Mary's voice, that has, you know, apologetic importance, as I've already said. But what her voice speaks of is of Jesus. And it's it's just so wonderful. And, um, you know, for our Catholic friends, this might be a book that can can point people towards Jesus. For our friends who, who don't know the Lord, it's a resource in the build up to Christmas to help anyone who, you know, wants to find some deeper spiritual meaning to life and journeys through Advent towards, towards Christmas Day. And for those of us who've been a Christian for a long time, hopefully it's a book that really refocuses us on, on who Jesus is. Yeah, wow. So I want to buy the book now. Yes. <laughs> Just listening to you talk about it. <laughs> yes. I, I'm curious, is there any history of Mary after after the resurrection? Do we know what happened to her after after, you know, Jesus said, you know, to John, here's your mother and here's yeah. here's your son. Do we know yeah, anything? So- as far as we know, according to tradition, Mary um, lived her whole life with John, you know, in his household. Mm. And then um, in, in the conclusion of the book, um, I reference a, a couple of, of sources in the early church that that speak a little bit about her Mary's significance as an evangelist, Mary's significance as obviously a witness as well. And as someone who kind of helped redefine what the role of women is, and one of the most important things that Christian faith did in the Greco-Roman world was redefine what it meant to be a woman. In the Greco-Roman world, to be a woman was to be oppressed. It was often to be sexually abused. Um, You had to live your life mediated through your father or your husband. Um, You know, girl children were often aborted. You know, women 
who became Christians didn't have to marry in order to have any a significant role. They could be evangelists. They could, you know, serve the Lord in the church. They were seen, you know, as, as economically viable as individuals. So regardless of whether you're a Christian or not, one of the most important gifts of Christianity to the world is seeing women as fully human. And it's ironically something in the church, I think that we've lost sight of, mm. but the view of women in the scriptures turned the ancient world upside down. And Mary is a very key figure in that. And then um, we see in the early art of the era images. And, and one of the things about Mary's voice, um, the book, is is that we um, we have a different piece of artwork every day. So the book journeys through Advent. It has a daily um, thousand word devotional um, through the days of December. Uh, but but one of the things about the earliest Christian art is that Mary is depicted hands raised in blessing in a posture and, and often as an older woman as well hands raised in in the posture of blessing so kind of active in ministry and mm. it's only much later you know in the 1500s onwards that the primary depictions of mary are you know her eyes down and holding a, a little baby yeah wow okay <laughs> one more question about mary and then maybe we'll yeah. segue here but I've always been curious about this. Um, it seems like when you read the Gospels, even though the disciples had been told by Jesus, you know, I'll destroy this temple and I'll raise it again in three days, nobody really knew what was happening. Mm. Do you think Mary knew? Uh, because the idea of watching your son be tortured and crucified, right? Mm. The fact that she was there when so many others ran away, the people that were around him, I just, yeah. I, I have noticed that would take a certain amount of strength to watch your child be destroyed like yeah. that. Um, well, yeah. What do yeah. you think? So one of the things that I reflect on in the book as well is her interactions with other individuals at different points. And she has this fascinating conversation with Simeon in the temple when she's brought Jesus to be dedicated in the temple and Simeon, this old man takes hold of Jesus. He's waited his whole life for the Messiah and he, he sees the Holy Family, sees this young couple, sees the baby, zeroes in, takes hold of the child, begins to prophesy. And he says all sorts of amazing things and ends with the nunc dimittis, you know, now, oh Lord, your servant can depart in peace for my eyes have seen the mm. salvation of your people, Israel. But one of the most significant things he says is he says to Mary, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. Mm. So he prophesies that this young mother is going to experience paralyzing suffering mm -hmm. through her role and that there will be a redemptive element to that suffering and so I think we and then the bible says you know Mary and Mary is the witness to this Luke knows this because Mary told him Mary treasured these things in her heart so she remembers and ponders probably for her whole life her whole adult life She's pondering those words that a sword will pierce your, your soul too. And obviously you also have the indicator from the gift of the Magi as well, the gift of myrrh. You know, that's that's for burial, very strange gift to give a baby. Um, so, so there are indicators that Mary knew that there would be suffering, probably, possibly not the, the specifics of crucifixion maybe, 
but she's there for the whole way through. She doesn't leave. Mm. And as you say, she watches her son die. And that's quite extraordinary, isn't it? That she's one of the primary witnesses um, to all of this. And I think that doesn't just lend apologetic credibility to the accounts and the historicity, the life of Jesus and his death and resurrection. It also lends a sort of incredible poignancy to it. Mm, Wow. (laughs) Well, the book is called Mary's Voice. You can find it on Amazon. Um, Amy, I want to talk to you about suffering. But before we dive into that conversation, I want to ask you about your own journey with faith. How did you become a Christian? And how did you become an apologist speaking around the world about uh, these intricacies of that we can find in scripture reasons for faith? Yeah, wow. So um, I became a Christian through my parents. My parents were very dramatically converted themselves in their 30s after my sister and I were born. Neither of them had been raised in Christian families. My dad was um, actually born uh, in in East Germany during the war and then lived under Russian occupation after mm-hmm. the war and escaped as refugees to to Britain um, with his parents and sister and grandparents. My grandfather was a very committed atheist, forbade the Bible from being in the house, forbade any mention of God. My dad went on to become an academic himself and only in his thirties did he encounter evidence for God and evidence for Jesus and then personally encountered Jesus very dramatically. And my mum about six months after my dad And they just, their lives were completely changed by this experience. And as children, um, we we saw that, we experienced that. My dad went on to become an evangelist and a pastor and church planter. So I grew up in a situation where I just knew God changes lives. And um, also context where, because my parents were both intellectuals, you know, we were as children really encouraged to question and you know, find our own faith and and engage in apologetics from a young age. So, um, yeah, that's that's my own journey of faith. I kind of made a decision as a child, and then again as a teenager. You know, growing up in Britain, you don't always have a lot of Christians around you. It's quite different from from America. There wasn't another Christian in my year group at school until I led someone to to Jesus myself. So. You know, I kind of grew as an evangelist at, at, at school, um, and we we then did have a little community of Christians through through school. I also went on mission trips with Youth with a Mission, and my first experience of preaching was um, was at the age of fifteen when a YWAM leader gave me an opportunity to preach in Wenceslas Square to two thousand people in <laughs> Prague. <laughs> That's another wow. story. Um, <laughs> So, yeah, I went to Oxford University and studied there. And that was a real kind of testing of faith. I mean, a very rigorous testing of faith. Um, But through that time, I began to also have opportunities to give little talks and messages here and there. And um, then I went on to do research and um, grew, I guess, as someone who could explore the Christian faith in a way that people who don't know Jesus could engage with quite an organic start and then 
a Christian organization invited me to to join as as an apologist and it, it sort of went from there and yeah I've I've traveled a, a lot in the last 25 years I've spoken in I think 39 countries now um, and had had a lot of conversations as well with individuals about faith and often given talks and um, open forums or let public lectures and then given people the opportunity to ask their questions or express their disagreement or whatever so apologetics isn't just about um, proclaiming what what I believe or think or arguing you know it's it's also about engaging with with alternative viewpoints and so that's just been a tremendous joy um, in the last couple of decades and some um yeah so that's that's a little bit of my journey wow okay I want to hear the story so you were 15 years old and someone handed you the mic and said go talk to 2,000 <laughs> people how did that work did you know that you wanted to speak or yeah I'd love so to it's hear very interesting you know looking back I just have so much thankfulness for the leaders um so I was part of so YWAM Youth with a Mission had um these sort of summer programs for for teenagers so um you could go for a few weeks and there's a whole group of you it's probably about 40 teenagers and you'd travel all over a country doing performing arts and a crowd would gather and then there'd be some sort of gospel preach and then you would do like one-to-one evangelistic witness with people who'd heard the message that was the sort of basic mm-hmm. setup and so um, you have to be reasonable at singing. I will. I was actually not so great at the at the dance, but we 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 managed it somehow. And so um, this happened to be the summer after the Iron Curtain had fallen. So mm. I mentioned earlier, my father was born, and um, in, in Germany, and then lived in East Germany under Russian occupation. And any anyone who escaped from that could if you went behind the iron curtain you could be repatriated and that was true for their children as well so that would be true for me so Mm. um before the berlin wall fell before the collapse of of communism in europe we could not travel to eastern europe so the first summer after the berlin wall had fallen king's kids were taking this trip to the czech republic to czechoslovakia as it was then and um, I was selected to go on this trip. And um, so we did like a week of boot camp where we learned all the songs and at all the sort of dances and everything. And then we traveled the country for three weeks. And so we spent quite a long time in Prague and the openness to the gospel was just so amazing because people were so hungry after mm-hmm. years of communism to hear about God. There was a tremendous spiritual openness. So the crowds were massive. And we'd we'd just done this set and one of the leaders just felt prompted by God, Amy should preach. And usually the leaders were giving the messages because they were obviously trained and, you know, knew what they were doing. But she just felt very strong prompting from the Holy Spirit. And, you know, I'm so grateful for that. It was so unusual as a young girl to be given that kind of opportunity in particular. And so um, they sort of said, you're on. And (laughs) I didn't have a huge amount of 
of, of choice and it obviously I'd seen it model so I'd seen other people doing it and I just got up and preached the gospel um I can't really remember what 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 I said but people definitely became Christians that wow. day um which was just very humbling and it shows you it's not about the the you know level of learning or whatever it is about God at work through us and in us wow you know, as you're talking, it brings back memories. So I was 15 when Youth with the Mission came to my church oh, wow. and taught us yeah. how to do a performing arts uh, situation called Toymaker and Son. And we okay. performed that for a year, uh, me and like, you know, 30 other kids. It was a mime, so we didn't have to yeah. sing, but there was dancing. I got the part of the princess because I couldn't dance, and which was like Eve. And yeah. we go to the Philippines for three weeks. And we tour around that country sharing the gospel. Mm-hmm. And we did, we would do this allegory of the biblical story. It was about an hour. And then afterwards, our pastor would invite people to respond to the gospel mm-hmm. message. And one night, we were at the University of the Philippines, I believe it was, and 60 or 70 Filipinos came to Christ that night. And That's I remember wonderful. our youth pastor later saying to us, um, you did not plant the harvest here. You know, yeah. God's been at work for quite a while here. Yeah. For whatever reason, we got to see it be reaped tonight. And yeah. I just remember as a young person that impacting my life so much to see, like what you're saying, the gospel, like when people are hungry for it, it's it's just incredible. It's incredible yeah. to see God move like that. So how that's amazing. That's amazing that you had a similar experience. <laughs> isn't that funny? <laughs> that's really cool. I, uh, wonderful. Yeah. You, you know, I wanted to segue to this. Nora asked me, she said, um, quote, and I think I mentioned it at the beginning. She said, I wonder a lot about why things happen in regards to suffering. I've struggled with my mental health. I don't know what to believe about the why. Is it that God makes things happen because he has a plan or a purpose? Or is it the human's fault or the devil's fault? I don't know. Um, I know you've written a whole book on suffering. You mentioned earlier part of the book that you've just written, Mary's Voice, came from a time of suffering. Um, Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts on that as somebody who's really dived into um, the issue of suffering and, and has experienced some things on yourself? So, I mean, the first thing I would say is that, you know, it's a huge question. And what I would say now, and if this is, that's what my book looks like, where is God in all the suffering? Um, you know, I, I, I'll give a, a short answer now, inevitably, because, you know, we, we're, we're on a podcast. Yeah. Um, and there are lots of strands of answers to this question in the Bible that, together woven together form a kind of tapestry that that I I think is coherent that gives us a, a, a framework at least to, to approach the world a world in which there is enormous pain and suffering and also in which there's a, a loving God behind it all so I would say sort of start by saying a couple of things and um, the first is that it isn't only Christians that need to answer this question about why there's suffering in the world mm. and it can be helpful to lay um, responses to this question alongside one another and ask which is the most satisfying so we'll come on to what what the bible says in a moment but we might look at what eastern thought has to say when the predominant idea is the idea of karma which is 
um, a kind of cosmic law of cause and effect. And that basically means that all of us get what we deserve. And so if you suffer, it's because you deserve it. And that might be that you've done wrong in this life, or it might be that there was a previous incarnation where you failed in some way. And so if you suffer, you get what you deserve. It's brutal. It's absolutely brutal and um, pretty horrific when, when when you think about it and really, really devoid of compassion and also quite demotivating to do anything about suffering in the world. Second possibility is a sort of hard form of fatalism, which is that everything is predetermined. We can't do anything about it anyway. So we just have to go with the world as it is. The world is screwed up and that's that's just fatally what it is. And that that kind of fatalism is what you see predominantly within Islam. That's the idea that there's only one will in the universe. That's God's will. That's why that word inshallah, God willing, is so important. Um, and, you know, Muhammad was asked in the hadith about the question of suffering and specifically, you know, why would Satan exist? And Muhammad answers, you know, that that basically God made it. So it's all God's will. God made Satan, God made evil, God made good. And we just have to accept it. And then broadly, the other possible category other than the Christian faith is what what you might call materialism, which is the idea that there's no God, there's no supernatural dimension. And moral categories don't really exist beyond the physical world. So essentially, um, ethics and good and evil are just determined by either individuals or societies. You know, it just evolves. And the reason we think murder is wrong is that you know, ancient people realized it was inconvenient to kill people. You know, we kind of need other people around. So um, ethics evolved, but there's no such thing as right or wrong. So so suffering is just kind of function of living in, in, in this world and there's no deeper meaning to it. And you can't even really say that evil is categorically absolutely wrong. It just is wrong in your cultural society or by your frame of reference. So obviously that's, you know, whistle-stop tour, very, very brief sketching. And then you come to the Christian faith. In the Christian faith, the Bible speaks of a good God making a good world and specifically a world within which human beings bear his image, carry his image and have a sort of inherent sacredness about our lives that's more than just the stuff of the biochemistry of our bodies, that we actually matter at a a kind of eternal level. And then specifically creating human beings to have the capacity to love, to give and receive love. And there's one thing about love that's really important. And in our culture right now, in our cultural moment right now, we really know this to be true. We call it consent, but essentially... Um, for love to be possible, it has to be freely offered. Love can never be compelled. If love is compelled, that we call that rape, right? If love is forced or or um, enforced on someone, it's not love. For love to be possible, it has to be freely offered. So God makes a world in which human beings bear his image. We have this divine sacredness about our lives. 
and a, a world in which we as human beings have the capacity to make real choices and, and that makes love possible. And the Bible's account of the world is that we have used those choices for harm as well as for good. And that is how and why suffering and evil entered into this world. And there are all sorts of dimensions to that, um, including the impact on the physical material environment, environment as well. So sickness and suffering and all kinds of things like that um, come into the world as, as a result of our human exercise of choice. But again, the Christian faith doesn't just leave us there with a sort of diagnosis of our situation, but also introduced to a God who loves this broken, fallen world so much that he's prepared to enter space, time and history in the person of Jesus of Nazareth for love of us. One of the most important um, scriptures in the Bible, verses in the Bible says um, that God demonstrates his love for us in this. God shows, he demonstrates, he evidences his love that while we were still sinners, while we were in bondage to sin and brokenness and suffering and evil, Christ died for us. So God's love is shown by the Son of God, not just entering history to show us what goodness is or to give us, teach us a lesson, to teach us some theory, but to actually suffer with us as human beings and ultimately for us so at the cross God in Christ suffers and he carries the weight of sin and suffering in that crucifixion of Jesus and ultimately triumphs over it offering us hope for the future but also his presence in this dark world so the hope of the Christian faith isn't if you turn to Jesus, you'll never suffer. You'll be somehow in this spiritual bubble, which will protect you from this suffering world. Not at all. The hope of the Christian faith is that as you and I walk through suffering in this world, like everyone else does, whether they believe in God or not, as we walk through that world, there is a God who loves us, who has suffered alongside us, and so who can actually know and experience what that feels like and pour his love into our hearts as we as we walk that journey of suffering. But also this future hope that through the cross he's redeemed us, that in eternity we will be with him and all will be set right. Evil will be judged. You know, the things that we've gone through in this life will be set right and you know this incredibly beautiful image that god will wipe tears from our eyes don't know if any of your listeners have um either had a baby or you know perhaps have a niece or nephew you you've known a baby closely and you think about the big fat tears that babies eyes cry and you know, as an adult, you might wipe the tear from their eyes, a tender, personal, beautiful image of our suffering being ministered to personally by God in eternity. So in the Christian faith, there is a, a, a framework of diagnosis of why the world is like it is. There's the promise and hope of God's love for us and presence with us in our lament, our tears, our suffering. And then the future hope, both of the judgment of evil, but also that, that ministry in eternity 
to us when all will be set right and God will wipe the tears from our eyes. Mm. And so I, I don't think there's any other answer to this question, either in secularism or other faith alternatives that comes anywhere near to what Jesus can offer a person who's suffering. Mm. How do you respond to somebody who says, uh, similar to Muhammad? Well, God created all of this, right? Like he created Satan too. How do you respond to that as a Christian apologist? Um, Because I understand, I'm trying to anticipate what Nora might ask here. Nora, sorry. (laughs) But how do you differentiate those two? Um, Yeah. Friend, if you're enjoying this episode, you may also enjoy exclusive bonus content each month. Finding Something Real is a podcast that has some costs associated with it. We have a website, monthly subscriptions to stay organized. We design things. We like to pay an assistant producer who keeps things going around here, that kind of stuff. We're not in the business of trying to make money, but we are in the business of wanting to keep this show going and be sustainable. So we use Patreon. And if you haven't heard of it, Patreon is the best place for creators to build memberships by providing exclusive access to their work and a deeper connection with their communities. Each month, patrons who support Finding Something Real get a bonus episode where we recap the month's episodes. Often those episodes feature our co-hosts and they will often share what this journey was like. There's other perks over there too, and it's easy to get involved. Just go to findingsomethingreal.com and click support at the top of the page. We'd love to have you over there in our Patreon community. Sure. The Bible talks about um, Satan as having been an angel. So alongside the human creation, human beings are actually higher than angels in, in the creation order because we carry the image of God and, um, you know, are, are like God. But there's an, also an angelic, a spiritual realm of spiritual beings. And, you know, in the book of Ezekiel in the Old Testament and in Isaiah, this fall of Satan falling like light from the sky, Lucifer, the most beautiful of angels who desired, instead of worshipping God himself, desired worship for himself. And so he falls as well. And so when um, in the Garden of Eden, it's described that the man and the woman are there and, you know, they've got the possibility of real choice, exercise of real choice. Don't eat from that one tree, all the other trees you can eat from, but not that one. And then um, Eve initially is tempted by this serpent. So the physical form of this creature is is a serpent, but behind that is this idea of, of a power of evil, a spiritual power of evil in the world. So God creates that which is good, but he's created that which is good to have the possibility of love. And the possibility of love entails possibility of choice and possibility of choice has meant that 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 harm has come into this world so it isn't just our human choice there is also this other spiritual dimension of of evil and harm in the world as well and I think for your listeners any of us who've gone through you know or seen really profound evil we will resonate with that we'll know that there's dimension of human choice and exercise, a human being exercising harm. And then sometimes there's also something even darker as well behind that, that, that is like a sort of spiritual dimension um, to it. 
So ultimately, Christians would say that God makes that which is good and he creates the possibility of love in this good world and and that's how harm has entered the world and when we've exercised either the angelic being or human beings have exercised our our capacity for choice for when we've exercised it for ill god doesn't leave us with the consequences of that alone he's prepared to come and redeem and help and save and rescue and ultimately set things right in eternity. So um, I would say I think the Christian faith has real explanatory power as to why things are as they are, but also can offer us practical hope. Without it being unreal, we're not required to be in this world and say, right, because there's God, there's no such thing as, you know, now I'm just going to have this perfect, happy, easy life, you know, surrounded by cotton wool. That isn't what the Bible promises at all. Mm. And um, just one last thing I would say is that there's a really interesting scripture in Romans chapter eight, where Paul talks about God having the power to be able to work things for our good. So even that which is intended for evil, even things that are really bad in this world, God can actually work and bring redemptive possibility. The best example we see of that, of course, is the cross where people seek to crucify Jesus and end the son of God. And he works redemptively through that crucifixion, overcomes it, Christus victor, powerful over evil. And Jesus is, is raised from the dead. But in the lived experience of Christians, we also see that there's a redemptive element to our suffering too. And that's that's mysterious. It's hard to get our heads around. Um, but it's something that we walk out in the Christian life with, with an expectation we're going to suffer, but we're going to expect to see good come out of even the most heinous of suffering because that is how powerful God is. Mm. It's beautiful. I'm thinking practically speaking, uh, you're somebody who's dealing with suffering. You can't even get out of bed or you just feel like you're mm. a puddle on the floor. Um, and, you know, having been through some dark seasons in my life, I, I know there's an anger that can happen. Like, God, why mm. would you allow this? Why would you allow this in my life? And why you start to compare a little bit. I know I have, you know, like, why did this person not have to deal with this? Like, why me? Um, To the person who is dealing with that kind of suffering, what kind of practical application can the hope of Jesus and Mm -hmm. the gospel, how can that be applied to that situation? Yeah, thank you. I think that's a really important question. I think a massive mistake, a category mistake we, we often make Um, is to think that God's love for us is connected directly to our experience of deliverance from suffering or evil. Mm. And um, so because we think, you know, in in our sort of human, and it's a very natural thing to think, isn't it? You know, I'm a mother and if there's anything I could do to stop my child's suffering, I would, right? So we our mind then goes to, well, that must mean that maybe God doesn't love me and that this suffering I'm going through is somehow evidence of God not loving me. 
Um, but I think the story of both the Old and the New Testament, that that is not the case. There's no promise that um, being loved by God and knowing God will stop us living in this fallen world. So we, we need to untangle those categories. And sometimes, you know, it's called the prosperity gospel or, you know, the, the, the sort of faith healers who would say, you know, if you have enough faith, you know, you will definitely be okay. And this terrible bad thing or this cancer or whatever won't happen to you. And that's, that's just not what we see. The people who have the most faith in the new Testament die as martyrs, you know, they, the great heroes of the faith really do suffer. Um, so, so the first thing I'd want to encourage a listener to do is to try and disconnect those two things in our minds and to begin to lean into the possibility of receiving the love of God poured out into our hearts as we suffer. The second thing I'd want to say is you mentioned the word anger, and I think that's a really important word. Sometimes people with faith, in faith communities or whatever want to shut down anger. We're frightened of anger. We think it's a bit dangerous. You know, maybe someone's going to um, be angry with God and that would that would cause them to doubt or that would be wrong in some way. But actually, I I think in the Psalms, you know, in Lamentations, you see anger articulated where on earth are you god you know how could you allow this how long oh lord are you going to allow this suffering to continue are you even good you know that is inspired by the holy spirit to be in the bible mm -hmm. so there's a place for anger and what that anger says it, it speaks to that deep intuitive sense that this world is not the way it should be it was it was created to be good and you know there's a fundamental alienation and dissonance between how things are when we suffer and how things are meant to be and we could even actually say that our anger when we suffer points towards the value of our lives and you know, materialism can't account for that. Materialism or naturalism, the idea that there's no God, there's no supernatural dimension to life, tells us that all you are as a human being is the biochemistry of your body. And that means, you know, when you go through suffering, let's say a woman is sexually assaulted or raped, all the suffering that she's experienced is the sum total of that suffering, all it could be is the bruise or the, the ripping of the flesh. That is all because there is only a material dimension to life. All you are is your body. Now, any woman who's experienced any kind of assault knows that the suffering you experience is far more than the tearing of the flesh or the bruising of the flesh. It's a, it's a fundamental kind of suffering of your actual humanity. And that is because you've been created in the image of God. Your life is, is sacred. There's more to you than the physics and chemistry, the biochemistry, the atoms of your body. You as a human being are, are so much more. And so when a human being made in the image of God is violated or desecrated in some way, the suffering is so much more because the meaning of that life is so much more. And so we, when we experience anger at the suffering in this world, whether it's the death or loss of a loved one through cancer or, you know, an experience of violence in some way, 
our anger and rage at that actually points to the dignity of our lives, not away from, not away from God, towards God. Um, materialism can't account for the level of that anger or the level profundity of the suffering we, we, we go through. So having said all of that, I would say um, if you're feeling like you can't get out of bed in the morning, you know, struggling with depression, struggling with, with keeping putting one foot in front of the other because life is so hard, I hear you and I'm, I'm sure you do as well, Janelle. We've, we've known that, we've experienced that. Um, and I would want to say, you know, God, can be with you in that suffering he you you don't have to be alone bible speaks of great heroes of the faith heroes like elijah having depressive episodes so depressed he wants to die so depressed he can't eat you know faint from from depression and that is a person who is a person who can hear the still small voice of god so um yeah there's a there's a lot I would want to say to to that question but I would want to end on that note of of hope yes there's explanation in our anger um yes there's a sort of framework around why God could be good and and we could still be suffering but I'd really want to encourage anyone going through that right now just on a practical level to be open to invite the loving living God into your suffering into your lament right where you are right now mm. um and and to hear that still small voice that you are valued that you are precious that you matter that your suffering matters and that you're not alone it's mm. beautiful i want to ask you a question it's kind of pivoting a little bit um but i think it's related uh, in times in my life where i've gone through suffering or loss uh, that has been the the season in my life where I've wrestled with, how do I know that this is true? That has been the season where I've gone back to, okay, what do I know? I, I know that God exists and all these different things where apologetics really has made a huge difference in my mm -hmm. life. And something that comes up on this podcast quite a bit is a question of the Bible. And when I was preparing for this conversation, I noticed, Amy, that you had written a whole book on it. Um, but one question that I think hasn't really been addressed. And I, I would love for you to speak to this because you kind of just mentioned it there. Um, I talk to young women who frequently ask me how we can trust the Bible. They say things like the Bible was written by men. How can we trust it when it sense things I don't really like? But maybe, and I was just talking to a young woman about this yesterday, it's not necessarily a problem with the historical document. But how do you respond to someone who genu genuinely wants to know if the Bible is special, i.e. inspired by the Holy Spirit, versus something a bunch of men just put together, how do you respond mm. to that? Um, well, I'd start by saying it's not only men. I mean, without women, we don't have the incarnation, crucifixion or resurrection. So that's pretty bad going for, <laughs> you know, team Christianity. Team yeah. Bible is struggling with the core historic facts of the gospels um and yeah so I begin by saying that um second thing i'd want to say is that unlike any ancient document from the, the equivalent times of either the old or new testament 
the perspectives and sufferings of women are included in the Bible. And that is actually extraordinary just in literary terms, even if you don't believe this is inspired mm. by the Holy Spirit. Um, so for women in particular, I kind of feel this really strong sense that we need to know this, that, you know, we really matter in, in this book. And that's, that's kind of extraordinary. Um, and in terms of, of um, the question of how can I know whether the Bible is inspired or not, um, I think I would want to begin by saying it's more important to ask whether the Bible is true and accurate or not as a starting place. Um, because inspiration isn't necessarily something you can test for obviously it was a massive question in the early church and you know the process of of examining the canon of what, what was scripture and what what wasn't was overwhelmingly or, an organic process it was done on the basis of what were the manuscripts that had been translated and spread through the known world for the first three centuries and only much later did a council of leaders get together and say you know there's quite a lot of heresy now being circulated and people trying to pass off books as if they are the bible so we actually need to have a meeting to say no this is what we know it is and it always has been um, and that's why the word canon means read or measuring rod it means it's reached a standard and that standard was based on authorship and authenticity. It was based on um, whether it had been translated and spread throughout throughout the known world. And it was based on, you know, when when the accounts or, or letters or whatever were, were written. Um, so I think when we ask a question about sort of authenticity and accuracy and truth, you know, we can take an evidence-based approach to it. When we ask a question about inspiration, um, that's a, I guess, a secondary question that you would need to settle. For me, um, the crucial question is really about, about Jesus. For me, the Bible draws its authority from, from Jesus. You know, Jesus spoke of, of um, the Old Testament as the word of God. And, you know, I, I don't come from Jewish biological heritage, so I don't have kind of cultural reasons to accept the old testament i i see the old testament is as inspired because of jesus mm. and then um with the new testament we sort of see that as inspired because of the witness of the holy spirit in the church and um the argument is kind of based on that but it's less of an academic argument and i guess more a, a question of of faith at that point so i think the bible stands up on measures of evidence history accuracy and truth and then that final step of whether you accept this as as inspired is kind of revealed to people through through the holy spirit and it becomes a conviction that um that you need to settle in your own heart mm. Well, now there's three books that you need to purchase that Amy has authored. One is uh, Mary's you, Voice. <laughs> the other yeah, one please is get Mary's well, Voice yeah. because you know this is the one I I, I need you to support right now because it's you know we've got a short time between 
fall and advent so yeah. yes yeah well I'm excited I'm gonna purchase it as Thank soon as we're you. done here it sounds wonderful um I always ask the final question here Amy and the question is this the finding something real podcast is about a journey towards restoration eternity authenticity and love all things that can be found in relationship with Jesus Christ Real is an acronym for those things. Mm -hmm. Restoration, eternity, authenticity, and love. Which of those stands out to you the most in your life right now and why? That's very difficult. <laughs> That's so difficult. Because um, I, I value all of them, but I, I, I feel authenticity is really important. Um, you know as you get older you you go through I guess more experiences of suffering and more you know more people in your life that have experienced some horror or other that that you want to support and kind of stand with and you know I've talked about today how the Christian faith kind of actually gives us a grounding a category for for why the harm that happens to people, why it matters, because, you know, we are sacredly precious to God. We've been made in his image. And so justice matters. And I think um, authenticity has never been more needed, um, you know, as as people are, are sort of some, some are revealed to be abusers or whatever, um, you know, including within the church, it's utterly devastating to people's, people's faith and so it really matters that you know when these things come up we don't cover them up we don't pretend they're not there we don't try and hide um but that there's a commitment to to truth there's a commitment to really discovering the truth including when that's uncomfortable and we don't want to hear it we don't want to face it um so the gospel speaks to me of authenticity mattering greatly because justice matters greatly. Um, and that's just something that, you know, has been a core part of my journey in in the last three to four years. Um, and what could be more authentic than a teenager living under occupation in a patriarchal society, encountering God and saying, you know, may it be as you say, you know, your servant, your servant says, yes, that was Mary's response to the angel. And, you know, a, a simple, authentic faith in an ordinary person just matters greatly. And that's what I want to be. <laughs> I want to be like, and I pray that for, for, for your listeners that we could recapture that that desire to, to know Jesus and to say yes to God. And if we walk through suffering, we do it knowing that he loves us. This is not a verdict of God not loving us in some way. If we walk through this world and see terrible injustice, that we stand up and we say, no, we're not having it, not on my watch. We're, we're followers of Jesus, the one who Mary said will bring the rulers down from their thrones where necessary. He's, mm. he's coming to turn a few tables over as well. So um, I think it would be, yeah, the A. 
authenticity. <laughs> well, Dr. Amy or Ewing, thank you so much for taking the time for this conversation. It was really the word that comes to mind. It's just beautiful. I've really thank enjoyed you. talking with you. And Nora, I love you. I hope that you uh, felt some, uh, you found some answers here in this conversation today. And um, until next time. Thank you for listening to the Finding Something Real podcast, friend. This season, we are inviting young women to join me as they share their personal stories and ask honest questions or share objections to the Christian faith. We hope to feature a different story each month and then invite Christian guests on to share from their own journeys and experiences and maybe answer some of those questions in follow-up episodes. Friend, the Bible says that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. I believe with all my heart that Jesus Christ is still in the restoration, eternity, authenticity, and love business. I know not everyone has experienced that, but if you're curious at all at whether there's something real to be found in Jesus, I invite you to come back next week as we continue on a journey towards finding something real in relationship with him. Until next time.